Outpost Media and Blue Ion, this is The Way Out There, conversations and stories about the relationship between people and the outdoors. We interview outdoor leaders, teachers, guides, and everyday individuals who have answered a call to step into the vast beauty out there. By hearing their stories, we hope you'll be inspired to go way out there yourself. Sarah Clow is a native of the Garden State, one of my best friends and general manager of Grow Food Carolina, a food hub based here in Charleston, South Carolina. Since being recruited by the Coastal Conservation League to Charleston in 2011 to start up and lead Grow Food, Sarah and her dedicated team have built relationships with more than 80 local producers and 250 wholesalers. To date, Grow Food Carolina has returned nearly $5 million to South Carolina farmers and helped ensure that rural working lands continue to flourish. We talked with Sarah at the Grove Food Carolina warehouse about her passion for food, farming, and the outdoors. Tell me your name and who you are and what you do. Um, my name is Sarah Clow, and professionally, I am the general manager of Griffith Carolina, which is a project of the South Carolina Coastal Conservation League. Awesome. Tell me, even though for the purposes of this podcast, um, we grew up together in New Jersey, suburban New Jersey. Go Jers. Um, in a town called Berkeley Heights. So tell me a little bit, tell me what I don't know about you growing up in Berkeley Heights. How long do you have? Um, and your relationship to the outdoors growing up in the Garden State. In, in the Garden State. So um, I always describe Berkeley Heights very beaver cleaverish. Uh, and for folks that don't know, it's about a 40-minute train ride outside of lower Manhattan. So um, very suburban, um, but access to a big city. Uh, the thing that I, you know, think about most when I'm thinking about, um, outdoors and growing up in Berkeley Heights is that where I grew up in Berkeley Heights, similar to you was pretty heavily Italian influenced. Um, a lot of my friends, either parents or grandparents, um, were from Italy. And so everyone had sizable gardens. It's just kind of the way that we, um, grew up. Uh, and so I do remember, and my mom had a, a good garden. I ate way too much eggplant when I was a child. Um, but there, uh, were, were great memories, you know, getting nipped by snapping turtles. Um, we were also really fortunate, which is something that I always think about is that, um, our, my house backed up to what used to be Bell Laboratories, um, and so we could climb over the fence. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have no idea how many acres it is, but it's a massive, massive property full of woods. Um, and we, um, as most children were in that generation, were allowed to pretty much be lost for most of the day. Um, so we did that a lot. Being lost is is interesting because I, I was talking with somebody about this the other day, the the sort of, I guess now it's privilege to have been able to spend time outdoors, but apparently there's very real coping skills that happen with free play. Mm -hmm. It's called, um, do you, do you look back at that time and feel wistful about it? Do you, do you feel like it was very formative for the person that you are now? 
I probably haven't thought about it that hard. You know, I think, um, I do feel like we were fortunate looking back and now understanding the challenges that parents have, um, needing to potentially keep their kids closer than they had to keep us. I think we knew of the dangers. I think we were aware of things. Um, but I think our parents were, um, and a lot of it is because of the way they grew up. They were just really understanding that we were going to be somewhere in the neighborhood. You know, I wasn't going to like hike to Watchung Hills, you know, but we were just out in the back, which could mean anything. Any one of 19 backyards. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it was pretty wild. Yeah. Tell me about um, being outdoors in terms of you played soccer yeah. throughout your childhood, through high school, into college. Tell me about that experience of being outdoors. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, um, we just spent all of our time outside. My mother is definitely one of those, like, you would walk up to her and you'd say, I'm bored. And she would look at you and say, go outside. Full stop. That was it. Not, like, go outside and do something. Just go outside. Um, so, you know, soccer was and, you know, still is a huge part of my life. Um, and so, yeah, so, and it's funny now as an adult, because now my impression of being outside probably doesn't include soccer because soccer is that controlled mode lawn in coached team environment. Um, although it obviously is outside, it, feels different than now what I think of as outside. Mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of my need um, to be outside and active probably came from that because you, um, I equate a good feeling with soccer and being outside and being active, right? It was always a feel good for me. I still do it now. Even, you know, I live in park circle and, um, it's not like there's a mountain to climb, but you know, I have to walk, you know, when I get home from work. And if that just means walking around the circle, that's being outside and active. Um, you know, in my family, we call it getting the wiggles and giggles out <laughs> and getting the wiggles and giggles out was always just running around outside. So when um, you went to Vanderbilt uh, for college, played ball there, and then when you graduated, you moved to Telluride, Colorado. What on earth prompted that massive shift? And and you and I have talked about this before, but yeah. I'd love if, if you could share that story and that feeling. So um, it definitely goes back. So growing up, you know, we had soccer. We went to the beach every year for vacation. So I was um, definitely an ocean baby as well, uh, which I, I still love, but I did, um, I was a pain in the ass as a young teen and, uh, my parents recognized that I needed some sort of kick in the butt. Um, and I was fortunate. We had had a, a friend, a family friend whose son went on a Knowles trip. So national outdoor leadership school, otherwise known as nerds out lost somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, um, the family recommended that it may be a good place for me to, um, go get my ass kicked and it was. And so I had never been out West at all. I don't think I had been West of Pennsylvania at that point. 
Um, and I went to Wyoming for a month and was in the backcountry for a month. And, uh, it, like it gives me chills and I can think so, um, I can see so clearly being in Lander, Wyoming before we took off, um, and just not really having any words to describe what I was seeing. Um, the Rockies, I was 14, um, and the Rockies were literally magic. Uh, and so, (laughs) and again, being a pain in the ass teenager, I came back after this like mind blowing experience and asked my parents why not, why we didn't live in Wyoming because everybody should just live in the middle of the Bighorn mountains. Um, and just, you know, this, like, this thing is there that I had never seen before and, you know, felt connected to in a way that I had never felt. And, you know, why, why hadn't I seen it? You know, it was a real mystery to me. I felt like somebody was holding it from me. Um, which again is just my preteen pain in the ass attitude of the world. Um, but the, um, the thing I loved most about it, which I don't think I recognized until I got a little bit older was that, um, I loved feeling small and that's really what that outside piece feels to me now. I think that, and it's kind of the same way I feel when I'm in the ocean, right? You just start to really understand how small you are in relation to the rest of when, whether it's the natural world or the human world, I mean, I think those all come together at some point. Um, but especially the natural world, um, just how insignificant, um, we are. Um, and I liked the feeling it didn't, it wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't, um, I was not fearful of it. I, there was something about it that I liked very much. Um, and so I, connected to that feeling and wanted more of it. Uh, I tried to go out West to school and my parents wanted very much to keep me East of the Mississippi for, um, four years of school, which worked out well. Vanderbilt was an incredible experience. I played soccer there and it really introduced me to the Southeast, right? So we would go camping in the Smokies and these places that if I had immediately gone out West, I probably never would have experienced. Mm So, um, so yeah, so I think that those four years in, in Nashville were also part of that, um, uh, you know, learning experience of what all different kinds of outside look like. And, um, to this day, I mean, now I live in Charleston, I can still get up to the Blue Ridge quite easily. And, um, which reminds me a lot of the Smokies because it's much different landscape than it is out West. Sorry. That was a long answer to why... So as soon as, as soon as I um, got out of college, I knew I, that West was where I was going. Um, I didn't know where, uh, and, uh, five of my girlfriends and I piled into one of their father's suburban yes. and, um, uh, we drove around the country for two months, uh, greatest trip of my life, uh, by far to be able to, um, uh, be lucky enough to take that time, uh, and have the resources to go drive around the country with five of my best friends. Uh, and we went a million places. It would be a whole nother podcast to, to cover. It would. That would actually be a great follow-up. I have postcards from that <laughs> That's journey. Right. Yeah. To cover that up. But, um, uh, it's funny as we sit here in Charleston, Charleston is, um, how I found myself there, uh, 
Sarah Hamlin had two friends living there who actually live back here now, and they were living in Telluride. So we went from Vegas to Telluride, which was actually quite a trip. And we got to Telluride. I had never heard of it. I knew it was in Colorado. I knew we were close to Four Corners, and that was about all I knew. Uh, And we had already been to Jackson Hole, and I had fallen in love with the Tetons, and we had driven up um, to Glacier, and I had fallen in love with Glacier. And, you know, so... All of these things. So we got to Telluride at, um, at when it was dark, so I couldn't see it. And um, there's very little light pollution there, so you really can't see anything. And uh, <laughs> the six of us piled into our friend's apartment. You know, we're, like, sleeping all over the floor. They lived above a club, so <laughs> it's, nice. like, not a lot of sleep. I woke up the next morning, probably pretty early, and uh, walked down, and their apartment was right on Main Street. And I literally um, looked towards the Box Canyon, uh, and I, I was like, "This is it. I'm done." Um, <laughs> what did you see? So, um, Telluride's a Box Canyon, so which means it's essentially surrounded on three sides by fourteen thousand plus foot peaks. It was probably early July, so still snow up on the top, um, and that crystal, crystal blue sky that does not exist anywhere but out in um, places like that. Um, the river, the, the falls were running, so I could see the falls, and you just walk straight down Main Street, and you literally feel like you are walking into the arms of this box canyon. Uh, and so my friend Sarah Lilly and I had planned to move out west together, both of us knowing that we didn't know where we were going. Um, and I ran back into the apartment and I think I dragged her out in her pajamas and I was like, this is it, this is it. And, um, I remember calling my dad and, uh, and you know, it's very, uh, now that I'm older, having a clear thought like that without questioning at all is such a gift. And it's a gift that I feel like we get less and less when we get older. Um, and so the fact that I can can uh, feel it is, is something that I come back to because it's served as a barometer for me to make other decisions in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the outside does that for me very well. It provides a lot of guidance. And I think like a lot of people will say, it's because other things are quiet. Uh, and it's, uh, just a very raw place. And so I think it gives you a lot of clarity into potentially what's next. So I called my dad and I was like, I figured out where I'm going to, you know, where I'm moving. And I was like, tell your ride, it's this little town, it's up in the mountains. And, um, he said, well, what's your commute from Denver going to be like? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, impossible. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, what's the nearest city? I was like Denver and it's about seven hours away. So, you know, um, whatever career that you think that I'm having after graduation is, is not going to happen, which he kind of knew, but, um, so yeah, so we finished the trip, and uh, I spent some time at home, and then that, I think it was probably September, um, packed up the Honda Accord and, and drove out to Telluride, and Lily came out like two weeks later, and that was my introduction into living in the Rockies, which literally, and I really, you know, people, other folks that have lived in Colorado and all around there, um, you know, we're like, oh, did you go here? I was there for five years. 
and they're like, did you go here? Did you go there? And the San Juans, just the San Juans and the immediate mountains surrounding them, you couldn't explore in a lifetime, um, just this little spot in southwestern Colorado. So um, I've spent, I feel like I spent months exploring those mountains and still feel like I, you know, scratched, barely scratched the surface. So, but uh, that, yeah, it's, um, and I tell people, I haven't been back in a few years now, just, you know, for lots of random reasons. Uh, but um, when I moved to San Francisco after Telluride and then would come back to Telluride often because Lily was still living there, um, I would tell people that I breathe differently there. And I don't think it's the oxygen deprivation. Um, I think it's just some sort of connection that I have to, to that place. Mm-hmm. When you made the decision to go to San Francisco, that was job prompted? It wasn't. It was, um, uh, it was life prompted. I felt um, Telluride is incredible and it's changed so much since I lived there. Uh, but I did, and I did a lot of different jobs while I was there. Uh, and at the end, uh, I was working for myself essentially and doing small business services for a couple of different companies and a nonprofit art school and all these things. And I got to the point where I was either going to have to start to hire people, which scared the hell out of my, you know, 25 year old self. Um, and I, I just felt like mentally and career wise, I needed to be in a bigger place, uh, to find really what was next. And I was nervous that, um, although Telluride was home and incredibly physically challenging all the time, um, and emotionally challenging in some ways, um, I did feel like I needed to uh, be put myself into a different potential career opportunities, uh, and and so that's really what prompted it. But it was not that was not as clear a decision. Right, emotionally challenging in that is there. I mean, living where you were in Colorado, is there? Is it also sort of isolating in a way? It is, and I never felt. You know, people talk about having island fever when they live in, you know, on islands. I never felt that way because it was easy um, to get out. I always tell people um, the winters were long for me, uh, even with the Box Canyon, because it's so high, you lose the light early in the day. So I would find myself driving to Moab pretty regularly come (laughs) March uh, because it was time for me to see a little bit more sun. So I think the winters were probably harder on me now that I look back than I realized. Uh, And the community was small. And so when you're at that age and kind of trying to figure out who you are, I think uh, I, I felt like I like there were more people, things to see, do, get involved with than I necessarily felt like was available now. Although it's very easy for me to say this now, 20 years later, than I ever would have been able to verbalize sure. it while I was there. Yeah. So, but yeah. Right. I knew I didn't want to come back east or go back east. Um uh, and but wanted a, a city and had some friends already in San Francisco from college and otherwise, and so I decided to go. Uh, it was really, like I said, really really hard. Um, but uh, and I got to, uh, I, w- I had to drive back and forth twice, like because I didn't want to haul anything, so I had to drove a U-Haul truck and then drove my car. Um, and I didn't bring my dog 
Zoe until the second trip. So on the first trip, it's just me in this U-Haul truck. And uh, I got to Truckee, which uh, is in the Sierras and about mm, three and a half hours from San Francisco. And I had never been there before. And I, you know, got there and I was tired and and the whole thing. And I called my friend Tiffany and I said, I think I'm just going to stay here like forever. (laughs) (laughs) It felt very comfortable. It was gorgeous. Like Truckee is this idyllic little town. Um, and Tiffany was like, get your ass back in the truck and, you know, <laughs> Keep get, driving. get all the way to San Francisco. So, uh, I moved to San Francisco in the height of the dot com. It was insane. The first dot com, I guess we have to, have to reference yes, that Yes, please differentiate. Now. Yeah, We're so exactly. Um, so it was, uh, it was crazy and I moved there knowing, um, really thinking that I was going to be the next, you know, dot-com millionaire. I think like we all did when we were 20 something moving to San Francisco. Um, so, but I had to work immediately. I borrowed a little money from my brother to get from Telluride to San Francisco. Uh, and so I went into a temp agency, uh, or recruiter or whatever you want to call them. And, uh, I said, we can talk about my future life, you know, later, but I need to work tomorrow. Like I have a job tomorrow. (laughs) And I was like, and I can do this, this, and this and whatever. And so, um, uh, so they, this woman was like, gosh, you know, well, this is interesting. I've got these two guys that are just starting this uh, friends and family investment fund. Um, she's like, I haven't even met them, but they need, you know, somebody to come help out. And they wanted somebody that has, you know, some of the skill set that you're talking about. And so, you know, and they pay a really high hourly wage. And I was like, done. And so while I was there, she called, you know, Brent, who became my boss and, um, said, you know, this is the, and he was like, great, send her over. And I was like, ask him what I should wear, you know, cause here I am. And like, I'm coming from five years in Telluride. So I don't even know why I asked because I didn't have anything. I was about to borrow <laughs> something. Um, but he was like, I don't care if she shows up in her bathrobe. And I was like, yes, perfect job. Right. So, um, so yeah, so I start working uh, for these two guys, um, basically a startup investment fund, hedge fund, you know, um, and, uh, but I had this, uh, from growing up in Jersey during the 80s, I had this terrible impression of the stock market, right? Like, and of people that worked in the stock market. Um, you know, 80s recession, right. you know, cocaine, people jumping off of buildings, just all of that stuff was running <laughs> Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko, exactly. Um, and so I said to these guys, I'm like, I'll come temp for you. This is awesome. I'm like, but I'm going to go look for another job. I want to be the next dot com. Like, I want to work for Petopia or, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> something. Uh, so it was great because they were flexible. They would let me go and interview and, and all of this stuff. And I just wasn't finding something that I was super psyched about. Uh, and I have, uh, my brother, Rich and I are really close and, you know, he's been a great mentor for me. And he was like, you know, Fred, you've got to be really careful because a lot of these companies are just filling headcount and they may not really have a defined role for you. So if your gut's telling you, you know, so I waited and I waited and I waited and it was like three months or so. And Brent finally was like, so if you want to, he used to call me Rock. He's like, so Rock, if you just want a job with us, <laughs> you know, we will hire you full time. And I was like, well, you know, let me think about it. But can we wait? Why the nickname Rock? I have no idea. 
I have no idea why my family calls me Fred. I have no idea why Brent <laughs> called me Rock. Like, it's just, you know. Amazing. The name Sarah really does not occur to people most of the time when they see me. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, so I went and, and, and the thing was is that even though I thought I didn't want to be in finance, I loved what I was doing. Um, they put me in front of a Bloomberg machine, and I had never seen a Bloomberg machine. And, you know, the Bloomberg machines were really the, the Internet before the Internet as we know it. Um, you know, he's a genius. And, um, and so, like, literally, it was, like, the first notion of having the entire, like, the information about almost the entire world at your fingertips, mm. right? It was just, it was mind-blowing. Um, and I loved it. So um, from not wanting to be in finance, I ended up working with them for five years, four or five years, um, while at the same time, you know, um, learning to be in San Francisco and appreciate West Coast beauty, you know, after growing up in New Jersey, it's just so different. It took me forever to figure out North and South because the ocean felt like it was on the wrong side. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a really exciting time at that time. And then, uh, you know, things started to crash, um, but the fund was doing really well. But Brent used to call up the tickers of all of these companies that I was like, this is a super cool company. And he's like, their stock is at zero. <laughs> I was like, okay, I get it. Um, so, uh, you know, and I had also gotten involved, um, you know, in the community and I was going to the farmer's market and I had started uh, volunteering for this organization called the Marin Agricultural Land Trust. Um, based up in Marin, and they are one of the oldest land trusts in the country. They were established in 1973 um, in reaction to a plan that was proposed to make Point Reyes a city of 100,000, which Point Reyes is still probably like 5,000 total people. Wow. So essentially they were going to run, they were going to widen Route 1 to look like 101, um, and just there would have been explosive growth up this corridor. Um, and these two women literally single-handedly started this nonprofit organization and bit by bit by bit started preserving these farms. Um, and most of the farmers out there were, um, you know, European descent, a lot of dairy, uh, you know, and, and, you know, some other small vegetable farms. But really just, it, it, it's amazing to think about when you look at a map about what it could have been and what it actually was. And that was kind of my first wake up call to, wow, like we lose farmland. It, you know, it's just not something I had ever really been up against or thought about or, um, and it was, uh, it, it immediately captured so much of me. Um, and so I, I was, I got the volunteer of distinction award a couple of years in <laughs> nice. a row. I think they were kind of like, wow, she's, she's here into a it. Lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, um, their main way to raise money and to get members involved was to, the, the farmers would open up their farms. Um, and so you could go and hike on these properties that the public wasn't allowed on. And then you would, um, give the talk and the farmer would be there. And it was just this really, really awesome thing. So I was working at the hedge fund and volunteering and doing all of the other fabulous things you do in San Francisco, eating a lot, spending a lot of time in Tahoe. 
Um, I got back to Truckee often, even though I didn't <laughs> live there. Uh, and um, I finally decided that as incredible as it had been to work at the hedge fund, I, I just knew that I had probably learned there what I was going to learn. And um, the you know, impetus, the, the, the actions of what we were actually doing was the fascinating part to me, but the making money for people that already had a lot of money probably wasn't (laughs) heartwarming. (laughs) I mean, I think people in finance are incredible and super smart and, and all of those things. So not to take anything away from it, but it's just something that it's, I knew that I did not want to advance my career, you know, in that direction. Right. And I knew I really wanted to be involved in food, which had always been a, a pull. I had had a catering company in Telluride, and I, you know, grew up working in restaurants. And um, and so I kind of decided to pull the trigger um, and um, started talking to people about what I, you know, I was going to take a break and talk to people about what I was going to do. And really, I, um, I got very interested in the potential of me starting to farm. Um, And so there were a couple of opportunities for me to, um, you know, kind of start this journey. Um, There's this great gardening school at UC uh, Santa Cruz. Uh, There's a couple other vehicles. But I said, really, I want some experience to see if I like it um, before I commit to it program or something. Um, so I looked around, um, the world really. So there's something called woofing, which is willing workers on organic farms. Uh, and it's an incredible program. It looks slightly different in every country. Uh, and, but it basically is the idea that farms really need free labor, but um, they oftentimes have housing or the ability to throw up a tent or, you know, generally they have a fair amount of land to share. Uh, And so when you woof, you essentially get quote unquote room and board, you know, that room can be a campsite. (laughs) Um, But a lot of times they're, you know, feeding you family meals and and things of that nature. And you get to learn, um, you know, what they're farming and how they're farming and the rhythms of their farms and things of that nature. So Um, I decided to go to New Zealand, um, which, um, and they had a, they have a really robust woofing program. And I mean, you know, also who doesn't want to go to New Zealand? Uh, so, so yeah, so I left my job and, um, sublet my apartment and, um, gave, uh, my dog Zoe to Trevor, who was a roommate and a very close friend, uh, for, gosh, tr- almost six months and, um, jumped on a plane and, and flew to New Zealand. And so describe, you know, the, the topography, the landscape, the way it made you feel. I mean, yeah, it's, um, it, it, it was very similar to the way I felt when I drove into the box Canyon in Telluride and I woke up one day and I was like, Oh my gosh, like it is. Um, it's it's hard to describe the feeling. Um, it, it's it, it's and you know I think we talked about Knowles early on in the interview, and it was that same like, gosh, it I am a speck, right? Like this is like utter grandeur and beauty, and it's breathtaking, and I am like a dot, you know, and I really enjoy that feeling. Um, so I flew directly to the South Island, um, right into Christchurch. And, uh, so my, um, first day 
I actually went on a, tw- uh, a bus, like a public bus, uh, and explored, uh, oh, the name is going to jump out of my head now, but this beautiful little bay. Uh, and, oh, I think I told this story last time. It may be a repeat, but so here I am. It's my really kind of my first full day, first full night in New Zealand, and I'm staying, they call hostels backpackers, right? So I'm staying in a backpacker. Uh, and you these backpackers are like four-star hotels. I mean, not the amenities, but like how like gobstock, like they're just so beautiful because most of them are like sitting on the edge of a cliff or they're on this gorgeous farm or like they're on the top of a mountain. You know, it's incredible. So here I am and uh, I, uh, you know, checked in with the guy and he was like, and a lot of them had like tents with cots. So you would, you know, I had my tent with me, but a lot of times you would have a bed, which was great. He's like, you can set up over there, and um, uh, and you know, New Zealand is really well known for its food, which we can talk infinitely about. But um, I said, you know, where where do you recommend? And the backpackers was kind of a little bit out of town, so it was you know, kind of a hike. And he was like, well, do you like mussels? And I was like, well, of course I do. And he's like, well, if you walk down this trail and then cross the road, and then there's another trail that'll take you down to the sea. Um, you know, if you look to your left, you'll just see mussels along the seawall. And he's like, and you can just take as many as you want. What? And I, you know, coming from the United yeah. States, like, this is, you know. Uh, and <laughs> Help so, yourself. Right, exa- exactly. Um, and he said, do you have a knife? And I was like, yeah. I've got, he's like, you know, it can be a little bit tricky getting off, but, you know. And uh, so, and I had of course brought some beers with me from town or wherever so literally I walked down to this little beach and like I'm not kidding like he perfect directions because you just get down to this beach and look to your left and there's just this wall of green lip New Zealand like you know size of your hand muscles and so I you know picked off a dozen or you know however I mean they're big you didn't need that many um and I walked back up to the top of the campsite and I steamed them in beer and I was like, I'm never leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I have everything I need here. This is it. Like, I almost didn't want to leave that town. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I mean, that was kind of the start of the journey. And, uh, but it was a really, a really good uh, intro and um New Zealand is, is I, I use the word magic too much, but New Zealand is magical. There's a couple of very, you know, obviously the landscapes, um, they're very, it's very um, uh, sparsely populated. Um, the, you know, everybody laughs about, you know, is there, is it four to one sheep? Is it, you know, like, <laughs> what's the multiplier on the sheep? Uh, and uh, the, um, it's, they have a lot of different, similar to California, they've got a lot of different growing zones. So you can really kind of follow the harvest. Now it goes opposite of ours because they're in the Southern Hemisphere, but um, you can kind of follow the harvest as it, as it um, progresses through the season. So I got there in January, which is essentially their July. Perfect, you know, great timing. So, um, so yeah, so uh, every, you buy a car in New Zealand. Um, everybody kind of, there's this culture of buying cars. You like buy and sell a car versus renting it. Yeah. It's, and you, people tell you this stuff and you don't believe them. And then you're like, all right, you know, 
And so I called mine Lefty because I was so scared because, you know, they drive on the left hand <laughs> yes. side of the road. And I was so scared to make right hand turns <laughs> that I just kept like making left hand turns for the first <laughs> couple of weeks. <laughs> I sent a blog, like what, I sent an email. It was kind of before we knew what blog posts were um, back called Lefty. That was my first email. And, you know, I didn't have a cell phone or a computer or anything. Right. But you yeah. would go into internet cafes when you got to bigger cities and kind of, you know, call home and tell people where you were and stuff. So um, I was originally supposed to spend half my time in New Zealand and half my time in Australia. Uh, and, uh, I kept delaying the flight to Australia, uh, not because I didn't want to go, but because I, there was just still so much to, um, do and explore. And so, yeah, so I worked on, you know, mixed vegetable farms. I worked on fruit farms. I worked on all of these different farms and also had a lot of fun. You know, I went on kayaking trips and I fly fished a ton and, you know, all of, all of those things. It was really, I was traveling by myself, so I met people, you know, all over the place and would meet people, you know, down in the, you know, southern part of the South Island. And then I would meet them again, you know, three weeks later to go do some other trip. Like, it was, um, it was pretty, pretty amazing. And I spent, the most time I spent on a farm was at a place called Beaconstone, which is on the west coast. Um, uh, and... I don't know if I'm spending too much time on this, but I th- again, it's like the stories are... So I, I got to... Um, I had heard about Beaconstone. Most of the um, backpackers are ecologically friendly because, you know, that's so much of New Zealand's culture. Um, but this one also had composting toilets. They were, you know, kind of taking it all the way. And so I really wanted to go. And so I drive up, and they had a farm that, you know, took woofers. And so I drove up, um, and... I got out of the car, and at this point, I had been in New Zealand probably for six weeks or so, so a while. And I start talking with this lady, and it took me probably 10 minutes before I realized she was American, before I realized she didn't have an accent. Um, and I was like, wait a minute, you're from the States? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, well, that's so interesting. And I said, you know, where are you from? She's like, I grew up in Tiburon which is literally oh my gosh. across the bay right. from San Francisco. But she had been in New Zealand for, she left Tiburon, I think Nancy left when she was 17 or 18. Wow. And had, and so, and you know, by that time, Nancy was probably in her late forties. And so she had just never come home. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So she and Gray, who's the owner of the property, they owned it together. Um, and he's a Kiwi. So I spent a lot of time with them and they've um, remained really, really close friends. That's awesome. Over the years. Uh, and so, so yeah. So I don't even know how you wrap up New Zealand. Well, other than let me bring it sort of back to the land and, you know, kind of what you're doing now. Like, other than the muscles, what was sort of the most, you know, amazing or earth-shattering or enlightening things that you learned about farming or growing things or, you know, the landscape? the environment when you were over there? So it's really special over there because they've been so far removed for so long. They have very few pests, right? So, and and when you, when you fly into New Zealand, um, they almost always go through your bag. They almost always spray your shoes. They opened my tent and wow. sprayed down my tent. They sprayed down my boots. They went into my fly, they took all of my flies 
you know, I had to buy, you know, because they were nervous that if the fly had been in the water in the United States, that whatever microorganism was on that fly could potentially damage the rivers in New Zealand. Wow. I mean, it is incredible now what they do with all of the tourism coming in to kind of protect this incredible biodiversity that they have. Um, there's a joke that, you know, nothing in New Zealand will kill you, but everything in Australia will. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, they're just, it, it's so pristine. Um, and so the farmers, you know, and, and obviously I've worked with a lot of farmers here in the United States too that are incredible stewards of the land. So it's not really a comparison, but it was the first time where I was like, oh my, you know, like, these folks, they talk about soil first. Like that's the first conversation. They talk about their water source first, you know, like, so it's the, and it's not just the farmers, you know, it's everybody that lives there is incredibly connected to the land and the air and the water. And because it's just part of them in a different way than I see here. Um, there's very little waste. Uh, they're very self-sufficient because they've had to be. I can never remember the number and we can look it up, but you know, they produce something like 65% of their own food, right? So here in South Carolina, we produce less than 10% of our own food. And we're like an, one of we're an agriculturally rich state. We have commodity and specialty and all of these things, right? But um, but yeah, I mean, it's just the the ecosystem and the culture and and everything. A lot of it relies upon um, and revolves around the environment and and the farms and you know animals and vegetables and how you know they all play a part on the land and. And, you know, elements, you know, it gets really, they say that you can smell Antarctica from the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand. I mean, there are penguins in the bottom of the South Island. Of the New- like, I saw penguins, you wow. know. Awesome. Like, they jump out of the water. <laughs> and, they, and you're all behind these blinds because, you know, you don't, they don't want to see. It's part of their, how you do it sustainably, you know, because they don't want to see humans. Right. They don't want them to get used to them. Right. Or, and they were afraid that they won't come nest where they, you know, generally nest. So like every, we're all like crouched down behind this blind and then they would jump out of the water. How cool. So, so I think the, what I learned there that I've always carried with me is, you know, like the conversation with the farmer about the farmer's land is kind of the most important conversation you can have, which we've, you know, if we come to present day today, we don't work with farmers that we haven't been on their land. Like, I don't believe that you can really understand and really help somebody without meeting. And, and, you know, I think that's true in life without meeting them where they are. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, and I think I told the water story, so I don't want to, I don't want to miss it because again, it was mind blowing. So here I am, I'm, you know, hiking all over the place and most rivers in New Zealand, you can literally stick your water bottle in and drink, right? Like, Giardia, you know, whatever. And I did not believe people. I thought they were like trying to pull it. It's like the jersey in me. I'm like, yeah, what? I was not born yesterday, you know? <laughs> so that I'm Our seeing. rivers catch on fire. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, 
here I am. And I'm like, and so finally I was staying um, at a hut on one of the tramps and they, um, their uh, park system and their, the folks that help in the parks are like the greatest people in the world. Like, I know you want to be a, I know Robert wants to be a park ranger when he grows he up. He does. You should go do it in New Zealand because it's, he'd never come back. It's amazing. So, uh, and I finally walked up to one of these guys and I was like, okay, like I've been struggling with this, but ever we're up really, really high. And, you know, and he was like, why would we lie to you? <laughs> I don't know. So, you know, kind of took the plunge, quote unquote, and it, it, you know, never, ever, ever got sick. And it was just like, it, again, it's one of those things that just kind of blows your mind. You're like, wait a minute, I can put my water bottle into a river and drink it. But the fact that we can't. Right. Is, is, is alarming. (laughs) And yeah, that we're used to. Right. Being afraid of it. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so that was, so, you know, it's just one of those life experiences that, uh, I gained so much from, um, every single step of the way. Um, and I don't think I would have come back if it wasn't for Zoe, if it wasn't for the dog, right. I think I would have tried to stay, but at that point she would Well, thank God for more. the brown dog. <laughs> the first brown dog. The yeah. first brown dog. Um, so yeah, so I did go through, uh, 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 Australia because that's the way my ticket went and I had friends in Melbourne and gosh, Melbourne's an incredible city and I could have been there for another three months, um, and need to go and do that. But I came back, um, all fired up, wanting to be a farmer, you know? And so, um, the next part, uh, you know, the next, really, it was a year was, ended up being a big struggle. Um, I think as anybody goes through career changes or anything, you know, like that, it's not easy. Um, and it's a lot of, you know, not beating your head against a wall, but just really not understanding where you're supposed to fit in the world is probably, you know, how mm. I would describe it. So, yeah. um, I started, you know, I came back and I did some networking and it's another great story just about, you know, connections and stuff. My landlord at the time, who's this, um, Irish guy, amazing guy, he and his partner lived upstairs from me. And I was telling him about being in the food system and farming, and but I didn't really know where I fit. And he was like, oh, well, I'm really good friends with Lawrence Jossel, who happens to be a pretty famous chef in San Francisco. And he's like, and we go walking Tuesday mornings at Chrissy Field with these other friends of ours. So these four men would meet and go walking along Chrissy Field in the morning, like at 10. Oh, my God. Super civilized. Right. <laughs> And he was like, you should come along. And I was like, oh, gosh, that, you know, that would be awesome. I'd love to meet Lawrence. And so we did that. And, you know, I'm like walking along, just part of the conversation. And Lawrence says, well, if you're into organics, you know, in the farming side of it, he's like, I can help you connect to restaurants. You know, he's like, but really, if you're on the farming side, you need to meet my girlfriend's mom because she was um, a lobbyist during the organic trade association, during when they created the national organic program and you know, she's like amazing. And so I was like, awesome. So it's just, you know, my landlord and Lawrence. And then he, um, introduced me to Diane who became my mentor, like a, a very, very close mentor and really the person that I credit almost with everything thereafter. (laughs) 
Uh, and because she introduced me to the first farmers in the Central Valley that I worked for, and she introduced me to, you know, this kind of community that I didn't know existed. And she also, when I was frustrated because I was like, okay, now I actually need to make some money, you know, I need to figure out how I can um, start to build a career around this. Um, and I kept, want, you know, the, the, you know, security to go back into finance and know that I would, you know, could do well and be successful and, and you know, make enough money to have a house and you know that kind of stuff was um was appealing you know and she was one of those people she's like do you know you've got to stay the course um and it was awesome and so she introduced me to John Legere um who was a farmer I worked with for a while um John was the first certified organic almond farmer um in the Central Valley which like wow so he's got traditional and um almond farmers call almonds amens and so we would be out in the field and he'd be like, Amen. I'm like, is he praying? Like, what? <laughs> and he would like point at the tree and he's like, no, it's an Amen. I'm like, that's an almond. He's like, we call them Amens. <laughs> um, Are we all doing it wrong? Yeah. Well, you know, it's the whole like pecan, pecan, right. you know, scenario. So, um, and he taught me a lot. Um, he did cherries and I would work with him on the farm three days a week, and then I would um, sell for him in the markets um, two days a week in San Francisco. So I literally, I was driving, you know, like the like quintessential like 1990 Honda Accord, you know, and I would come back from the farm with like, and the car was full of fruit, and he also made almond butter and, you know, all of this other stuff. And then there were two market tables and two um, market tents on the top of the car you know I was like this uh, yeah yeah. I was like rolling it was hilarious setting the tone for days to come (laughs) so uh so yeah so I worked for John for a while and um you know and then like I said I I knew I needed to do something full-time and 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 he was great he was like you know Sarah I, I really respect you and you're really smart and you've helped out a ton and and he's like but I don't think you're gonna be a farmer and I was like really I was like, am I doing something wrong? You know, like we all go to that <laughs> right. place of like, am I doing it wrong? Right. And, um, and he's like, well, he's like, you have no money. You have no land. And he's like, and you're a little bit old to start. But besides that, <laughs> I know. Perfect. That really what he, and he said, he's like, listen, he's like, when you sell at the farmer's markets, he's like, you light up. He's like, you can tell the story, you are so excited to tell people why the Rainier cherries taste this way this week and that way. You, you're excited about organics. You talk to people about the owls on the property, you know, and he's like, he's like, it's incredible, you know, and he's like, there is something for you in this industry that's not, you know, you farming the land, yeah. um, which... That's like the greatest turndown ever. It is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he was super sincere. Yeah. Um, and uh, he said, you know, I'm, we'll start introducing you to a couple of the marketing companies in town that, because he did a lot of direct at farmer's markets, but he also sold wholesale. Um, and so that's how I got to introduce to Pacific Organic Produce. Um, and it's kind of a funny story. So I went with John to take a sample of cherries um, to... 
POP. And so we walked in together and we're kind of like, you know, Greg, the CEO at the time is like, you know, kind of, um, sorting out the cherries and he picked up one and he's like, wow, John, that's a great size. Is that a 10 row? So cherries are measured by how many will fit on a row. Um, so the bigger the cherry, the smaller the number. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, and uh, I was like, I think it's an 11, you know, I'm like, I don't think it's quite a 10. <laughs> and so Greg, who was, um, grew up in the Bronx, uh, was like, I'll bet you a dollar it's a 10. <laughs> I was like, I'll take that then. You know, and I was right. It was an 11. That's awesome. Uh, and so uh, it took me a while to, to start working with them, which is also just one of those life stories. And I interviewed with them. I interviewed with a company called Veritable Vegetable, who I ended up being close friends with the owners. They're still friends. Um, and everybody kept looking at my resume being like, what is this like hedge fund analyst want to do working at a fruit company? And you know, I get, there's, there's that whole, you're overqualified, you know? And so finally I was in another, I finally, you know, went back to POP and I met with one, another one of the partners, Stevie and Amy, who's now the general manager there. And I said, I was like, I am not overqualified. I'm like, you know, I was like, I don't know anything about fruit. (laughs) You know, Um, I was like, please, please, please give me this opportunity. And so they finally did. Um, and then I started, you know, I mean, here I was, I was, you know, a sales support person for the sales team, um, which was fascinating. You know, we sold fruit out of, so uh, all organic farmers, but, um, you had farmers from not just North America, but Central America, South America. Uh, and then, uh, we also exported fruit to, um, the UK and, and Japan. So, you know, different than those uber local stuff that we're doing now uh but it was fascinating and I loved it and um I kind of you know moved up uh as we went along and um then became the I can't even remember the name it was the North American commodity manager which essentially meant that I worked with the growers on supply side you know like what was coming and and all that stuff and so I was there for six years um uh, and, you know, just gained a ton of experience and, you know, fell in love with, you know, what I was doing more and more and more and, um, you know, kept volunteering with Malt and um, really, which just, it was kind of like a dream come true. Um, and, and so, yeah, we had a juice company, Purity Organic Juices. I did a lot with the juice company, uh, which was really cool too, because then it got me into the whole marketing and consumer packaging side. So, you know, there was a lot of experience there. Uh, but it was just a brand that I really, really believed in. Uh, and I, you know, kind of like John said, like, you know, whether I was selling to a customer or, you know, trying to kind of work with the farmer to sell, because there are other tree fruit marketers out there, you know, they don't always have to pick us. So, you know, like learning to kind of sell to the farmer as well. Um, and what I was selling the farmer was like, I will tell your story the best. Yeah. You know, right. Not just me, but the company, like we will, we will tell your story the best. Um, cause it's what consumers want. It's what people want. You know, they want the story. Um, and you know, hopefully most of them do. 
it, we need to get more and more people into understanding how important it is. Um, but yeah. And, um, well, it was telling that story part of what attracted you to the job at Grow Food. I mean, did you, mm -hmm. did you from the beginning or was it pitched to you that way when you, when you were sought out that that's what you would be doing? Uh, I think, you know, they weren't, I, I, I don't know if it was as clear as that yet. Yeah. In a perfect world. In right? a perfect world. But, you know, so I had been at Pacific Organic for, I think it was six, maybe six years, seven years. And, uh, I, it, I was getting a little itchy to make a change, uh, as amazing as it was, it was just, you know, I mean, it's just something that's in you. You just kind of know when it's time. Right. And, uh, and I, you know, really loved all the people that I worked with, but I was like, you know, I think, um, I think it's time to go and, and do something else. I was, you know, but was not looking yet all of those things. It was just incredible timing. So, um, one day I get a call from William Cogswell, who, um, was on the board of the Coastal Conservation League at the time and is... Uh, the brother of my very close friend, Sarah Hamlin Hastings, uh, and Sarah Hamlin and I went to Vanderbilt together. And I guess they had started talking about this concept of the Coastal Conservation League, and William must have told Sarah Hamlin at some family dinner or something, and she was like, well, call Clow. That's what she does for a living out in San Francisco. And I had met William, you know, because he was at Swanee when we were at Vanderbilt. So, so he called me, and he was like, you know, it, it, it's so funny because all the terminology wasn't there yet. You know, right. like the word food hub and, you know, all of these different things. He's like, but we're trying to do this, like, farmland preservation. We, you know, we have a warehouse now. We want to help the farmers. You know, all of these. Is loose. <laughs> yeah, it's great because when you talk to um, Lisa Turansky and Dana Beach and, and all of the folks that were kind of the original, you know, concept, you know, people, it went, Grow Food had a lot of iterations right um, before it became Grow Food. And it's funny because they had these code words for, and I can't even remember them, but one was like, blue indigo. And I'm like, what? I was like, where were you guys talking that it had to be so secretive that you were going to open Who was it? listening? I know, exactly, exactly. I'm like, who would care? <laughs> um, so we had a bunch of conversations. I did a little um, consulting work for them. And um, and yeah, and the um, they essentially, you know, kind of put together a job offer uh, and... I came out for the interview, or no, sorry, not a job offer, but they said, you know, do you, we need a general manager. Do you want to interview for the position? And I said, you know, I would, I was like, Oh God, Charleston, South Carolina. I remember, I remember what? looking, I remember <laughs> looking at, uh, one of my close friends, Trevor, who had Zoe for so long. And we were actually up in Tahoe, like right after I had talked to William uh, another time. And I looked at Trevor and I was like, can I live in Charleston, South Carolina? And Trevor lived here in middle school. He's like, of course you can. And his parents live here and stuff. And I was like, gosh, it's just so weird. So, um, weird because it was the South again or weird because it's just there not just a, a lot of connections that like were coming back together, Yeah, you know? Right. Uh, and so, and Sarah Hamlin had just moved back down from New York and right. you live here, right. you know? So it was uh, like all of these like wild, yeah. really wild things. A lot of things. swirling things happening. So I came for the interview, um, and uh, met in, Dana. in what month was that? Oh gosh, it was in May. Oh, it was brutal. <laughs> no, it couldn't have been in May. It must have been earlier than that because I moved in June. 
Must have been in April. The, the, it wasn't hot for the interview. Okay. Yeah. Only when you arrived. Only when I arrived. Yeah. So uh, I think it was early April. Um, and I met Dana and Lisa and, and I met with William. And then um, at that time, Laura Gates, um, who's incredible, was the chairman of the board. Um, and I just remember sitting down and being like, you are impressive. Like, <laughs> you know, like I asked we'll her more, right, her. I asked her more questions than she asked me. Because uh, I had done, you know, done some research on folks and uh, she looked at me and she's like, do you think this can work? Um, and I said, yeah, I think I can. I think it, I think it can. Um, and then, and I met with Jeffrey Schutz, who's still the, um, head of the Grow Food Committee, and he was on the Coastal Conservation League board at the time as well. And, um, you know, again, like just super smart and, you know, very, very focused on bettering the environment. And, and uh, you know, he said, you know, really this, this project needs to move the needle. And I, you know, same thing. I was like, okay, we can, you know, we can move the needle. And Lisa, who had done so much groundwork, she really is kind of the the first, you know, leader of Grow Food Carolina. Um, she didn't want to show me the warehouse. <laughs> so here I am. I'm in Charleston. I was like, I kind of need to see it. And she was like, it's scary. <laughs> so <laughs> the building that we're sitting in now, I mean, it was pretty bombed out. Um, and there had been homeless people living here and all the copper wire had been stripped so there were no lights and there was broken glass everywhere and there were like old, terrible cubicles all over the place. And uh, But, you know, we walked in and we kind of walked through and I was like, no, this is perfect. I'm like, it needs some work, but it's, you know, it's a really, really good space. So, um, so yeah, so I went home and, um, you know, they sent me an offer and, uh, you know, I was like, I need some time to think. And they're like, well, we'd really like you to be here right now. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, give me a couple of days. Uh, and yeah. And so, um, I, uh, left Pacific Organic um, and I, I mean, I barely took any time off, which is the, one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made in my life to, you know, the kids listening out there <laughs> take more time off between <laughs> positions. Um, and I landed here, uh, Memorial Day weekend, Memorial Day of 2011. And I got off the plane at like six o'clock in the morning. I had taken a red eye and it was, I swear to God, it was 102 degrees. With ninety five percent humidity, I thought I was gonna die, um, but yeah, I was here. You were here. I was here. Yeah, and then um, the rest of it is, you know, the whole um, starting Grow Food, right? Which was essentially like starting your own company. Right. It was, uh, and in a way, I mean, I definitely like having the coast. The reason why I took the job is because. You know, Dana and the board had the vision, had the understanding that farmland preservation is such an important part of the overall conservation, you know, just of overall conservation, that farming plays, you know, the bad side of farming and the good side of farming are both really, really important 
um, leverage points that conservationists need to be looking at, paying attention to. And so the fact that they, and all of this, you know, work that I had done with the Agricultural Land Trust out in Marin and the, my love of, you know, working for farmers and promoting them, it just really married those two things. And so, we, you know, we had a lot of support. Uh, you know, I had, A, we were donated this building, which was amazing and, and generous and, um, and, you know, and then there were some other early funders that came along and said, wow, this is, you know, this is awesome. It needs to happen. And, and, uh, and then the mechanics were, Lisa had done a lot of grassroots work with farmers around the state. And, and so I kind of followed her lead and started meeting folks and started pulling the business plan together and we remodeled the warehouse, uh, and, you know, started the, another fundraising plan and, um, you know, I literally, it was so hot. So, <laughs> I mean, the heat cannot be emphasized enough. Here I am, like, you know, I've been in California for 12 years. Right. It's like 55 degrees year round, pretty much. Even when it's 70 in San Francisco, it feels cold. And, uh, and the farmers are like, it's July now, right? By the time I, like, get my, you know, plan together and start, like, July and August are when I decided to go visit farms in yeah. rural South Carolina. And the farmers are like, are you crazy? Like, <laughs> you don't want to be out here right now. First of all, nothing's growing. You know, I'm from New Jersey. July and right. August is, like, prime time. Everything in the lower part of South Carolina is totally burnt up by July. <laughs> They're like, there's not much to see, you know? And I'm like, well, I just want to come out and meet you. And, you know, and they were definitely like, who are you? Why are you here? What are you talking about? Um, and, and so, yeah, so I convinced five farmers um, that it was a good idea and that they wanted to start with us. And so, um, and Benton, who's um, the director of operations now, was working with me. When we opened the doors, uh, and Bob, who's awesome, was working part time as well. He was going to do deliveries for us. He's a chef at the same time at Cyprus, and uh, yeah, so we opened the doors October first of two thousand eleven, and I think we accepted three deliveries that day. That's and, amazing. Yeah, and I've told the story before, but um, uh, so we put out the first price list, right? I put, I, I email out the first price list to chefs, right? I mean, right. There were probably 25 chefs on the list that I had met. And, um, you know, it's like anything. It's like uploading your novel or sending an important email. You just sit there and you wait for a response, <laughs> right? Well, it was four o'clock in the afternoon. These guys are all getting ready for dinner service. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I tried to go to sleep, couldn't sleep. Um, and I got a text from Travis Grimes at Husk at maybe probably one o'clock in the morning when he was closing up the kitchen. Because they had really just opened too. Um, not just, but they had been open for probably eight months when we got here. Um, and he basically ordered one of everything. Um, and I literally, like, I think I jumped out of bed and I was like, it's going to work. I'm like, it's going to work. <laughs> um, it flies. It flies. Yeah. And, uh, Travis really tells that story. Very funny. He's like, I did not need any of that stuff that I ordered. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's one of those, it really, it was just like, we believe. We believe. Yeah. Yeah. And now the list that we send out twice a week is five pages long. Wow. You know, even, yeah. even in the 
even in August when things are burned up. Right. You know? Right. Um, and so, you know, and, and, um, but now there are 12 of us. We work with 85 producers. Um, we're doing about $2 million in gross sales a year. Uh, it's, yeah. It's unbelievable. It's really, you know, and people continue to support us, which is amazing because there's still a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done. Um, and a deeper dive into the farmland preservation part of it that we um, w- will definitely, you know, focus on as we as we grow. But uh, the farmers that are in the system, you know, the, the, the hope is that they are economically sta- sustainable. So they keep farming, so they stay on their land, so that land stays in, in farming, in productive landscape, versus the alternative, um, which is a lot of what we see, you know, around the country. Right. So, uh, so yeah, so, and it's, um, you know, South Carolina has incredible opportunity to, you know, be like New Zealand. <laughs> bring it back bring it back to New Zealand can you imagine dipping your Nalgene in the Ashley and taking oh my. a big <laughs> wow a big that's a really I mean mm, we should talk to a waterkeeper about that actually <laughs> imagine dipping your canteen into the Ashley River and being able to drink it yeah 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 it'd be awesome it would be amazing so but um you know I think that it just the opportunity here is really outstanding what is there is there any sort of common thread that you've seen in the farming community here in South Carolina that is is surprising or something that you didn't really expect? That's a good question. You know, uh, I'm sure there is one. I don't want to give the generic farmer traits, although I really shouldn't say generic because they're true. You know, I mean, farmers are very independent all of them are really unique uh and so finding a common thread throughout all of them would be yeah you know maybe tough but uh were they all skeptical meeting you I mean I guess I mean you have momentum and a name recognition now certainly but I'm sure, like you said, in those early days, they were like, who yeah. are you and why right. are you on my land in yeah. the middle of August? <laughs> uh, you know, there were definitely some skeptics. There are still, you know, and it's not like we work with every farmer. There are definitely farmers, amazing farmers, that we don't work with because they have their own marketing, you know, in motion. Right. And they don't need us. Right. And that's, that's awesome. Yeah. You know? Um, so, so, yeah, it's still, I went to go see um, a new farm on last Tuesday. Oh no, today's Friday, this Tuesday. And uh, it's just, he's literally starting with a blank slate. Um, and he's a farmer that's farmed in the low country um, with other people before. Um, and has one of these awesome stories about how he, fi- he had been looking at this piece of land for a long time and just didn't have the mechanism to get it. And finally, a friend of his was like, hey, you know, are you still interested in doing that farming thing? He was living with his wife up in North Carolina. He's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm a partner with you on this land. And so now he's on this piece that's just incredible. And it's a, literally a blank slate. Like, he knows what he wants to do. But, but and it, it, I mean, I, like, every hair on my body stood on end. Wow. And I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. So, and, you know, you then you, like kind of feed off of each other. I'm like, oh my gosh, you can do this. And, you know, 
I was like, oh, you should plant a couple of fruit trees. He's like, oh, we have, this is where the orchard's going to go. And I mean, it was just, ah, that's amazing. So that's the, I think that's the, the incredible thing is that because there is opportunity here, you know, and I don't know all the prices off the top of my head, like what a land of, what an acre of arable land in California costs versus South Carolina, but it's a deal in South Carolina. (laughs) Right. You know, so, so we should be focused on, you know, having young, smart, eager, farmers on the land here um and and helping those folks make it yeah you know so um in terms of you know the the physicality of grow food carolina right like you're you've you've walked a lot of farms yeah in the seven years of the organization um you don't yeah um and just your own experience of being you know outside in the state of South Carolina. It's hot. (laughs) Beyond establishing that it's quite warm here, tropical, (laughs) things like that. What, um, what do you love about being outside in South Carolina? Um, because it's just to harken back to things that you have said, right? The things that, um, earlier of, of like that that notion of feeling small mm-hmm. um moves you yeah you know on a on a deep soulful level and so have knowing that you know it's quite flat here for for those of you who don't know the low country um so it's have have it's low have you found that feeling here um in the water you know i think um you know Living in Northern California for as long as I did, you and I would get in the water, you know, in a 4-3 wetsuit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, and we would swim in the lakes and stuff up in Tahoe in the summer. uh, But it's not like, I mean, we could live in the water here. Yeah. You know, and so, and I think that that's kind of been the similar feeling of me being on top of a mountain you know it's the like being out and you don't even have to get out that far to feel you know pretty far out um and so I think that's the the water culture here is just incredible uh and so I I think of when I think about being outside or playing outside even though oftentimes I am on land um and the farms are beautiful you know um, but to really kind of capture that feeling that I've talked about in these other places, it's probably, you know, out in the middle of the water. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's a, um, it's a great, fe- it's a feeling that we, you know, we should just, everybody needs to have, you know, right. I think I started with the Noel story about me being a pain in the ass 13 year old or however old I was you know, thinking I was the center of the universe and just literally having, like, the mountains knock that notion right out of my brain. Right. Like, right off my neck and be like, you, you know, you are a speck. Right. I remember you came back and we had um, double sessions in August. (laughs) And Sarah taught us all how to tell time, like, the Knowles way. We thought we were hot shit um, because she she taught us to tell time with our hands. (laughs) to the sun. It was awesome. Well, Sarah Clow, 
General Manager of Grow Food Carolina and one of my dearest, dearest friends, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. Thanks for going way out there with us. Way out there, yes. And thank you guys for doing it. To learn more about Sarah Cloud, Grow Food Carolina, and where you can find deliciously grown local food, visit growfoodcarolina.com or follow them on Instagram at growfoodcarolina. As always, thanks for listening to this episode of The Way Out There. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher. For notes about this show and others, be sure to visit thewayoutthere.com. The Way Out There is a product of Outpost Media and Blue Ion, located in the outdoorsy cities of Charleston and Greenville, South Carolina. And as always, we hope you're getting way out there.